are the chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Stuart has shown from our resume, our study last time brought us to the commencement of Zachariah's psalm. Upon the naming of John, his speech was given to him once more and he burst forth in this glorious psalm of praise. In verse 67 we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And so the psalm is a prophetic psalm. The psalm that he spoke under inspiration of God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, he burst forth in these words. And we can imagine the amazement of that gathered company in the house of Zechariah, the relatives and the neighbours and the friends who are gathered there to witness the circumcision of that babe. And here they see this dramatic sign, this man that had been previously dumb, now bursts forth in speech. And as we come to analyse the psalm, we find indeed that it is a very beautiful psalm. We find, as as Brother Stuart pointed out, that the psalm can be divided into five divisions. We've set those divisions out upon a sheet that was given to you as you entered the hall this evening. And the psalm divides into those five paragraphs. But basically we find the psalm also can be divided into two parts. The first three divisions, that is verses 68 to 75, Zechariah speaks of the redemptive work of Christ in relation to the nation of Israel. In the second division, verses 76 to 79, or the second part of the psalm, Zechariah speaks concerning the work of John and Christ showing that they are the beginning of a new era by the grace, by the extension of the grace of God. And so the psalm divides into those two parts. Now in part one, Zechariah speaks, as we noted, particularly of Yahweh's work of redeeming Israel. He speaks particularly concerning the nation of Israel. He speaks in verse 71, for instance, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. He speaks in verse 72 of remembering his holy covenant. In verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And as we examine these statements of this psalm, we find that Zechariah is speaking particularly concerning things that God had promised and prophesied that he would do with the nation of Israel. Now as we notice Zechariah's language, we see that Zechariah identifies himself very much with the nation of Israel. Take note, note verse 69. He's raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Verse 74, that he would grant unto us 
that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Verse 75, uh, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He's speaking uh, in the plural in every case. And Zechariah is clearly identifying himself with the nation of Israel. You know, when we look at this first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we saw a couple of classes ago the great contrast that there is between Mary and Zechariah. How Mary believed the testimony of the angel Gabriel and humbly submitted to his demands. Zechariah, as he stood in the holy place, as the official representative of Israel upon that occasion, as a representative of Israel under the law, he couldn't believe. He couldn't believe and he was smitten dumb because of his unbelief. And we, we saw then the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. And we saw how Zechariah stood as a type of that nation of Israel. Under the law, they couldn't believe even though the Lord Jesus Christ was manifested in their midst. Even though he was raised from the dead, they couldn't believe. You know, Israel, ever since that time, as far as speaking anything, any words of truth, they've been dumb. They can't speak any word of truth because their eyes are blinded. They're dumb. But in the future time, when, the Lord, when they are brought to accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah, they will then speak words of praise unto Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that that type, that Zechariah is set before us in this chapter as a type of the nation of Israel. He was smitten dumb there in the holy place of the temple. But now that John is born and named, he speaks forth praise. You know, if we look at Luke chapter 1, we find that these two songs are presented in this chapter. And it's really quite beautiful really when we look at it. Because Mary's song, in her song she represented the Ecclesia. But Zechariah in his psalm speaks on behalf of the nation of Israel. And here we find the Ecclesia, in Mary's song we find the mind of the Ecclesia expressed at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ or the prospective birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the song of Zechariah we could almost put the words of Zechariah's song into the mouth of the nation of Israel in the future time when they are restored to divine favour. And so here in the psalm of Zechariah we have redeemed Israel's uh, thoughts in relation to the promised Messiah in the day that they come to accept him. And so we see that in this chapter, in the song of Mary and in the song of Zechariah, we have represented the Ecclesia and the nation of Israel in the future when they are restored to divine favour, when they accept Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. In that time, when their mouths will be opened and they, as a nation, will then praise Yahweh for his redemptive work with them. You see, we look at the very first verse of Zechariah's psalm. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He gives Yahweh his full national title. 
the Lord God of Israel. You see, compare that with the way that Mary um, addresses um, addresses her God in in her song. In verse uh, verses forty six and forty seven, and Mary said, "My soul doth magnify the Lord; my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour." And she praises. Uh, she praises God and she praises him as God my Saviour. But Zechariah addresses him as the Lord God of Israel. He gives him his full national title because it's as if he is speaking in this psalm on behalf of the nation of Israel. You see, he says, For he has visited and redeemed his people. That term, he has visited. We did note last time that it's spoken concerning Yahweh visiting Sarah and Isaac being produced from whom the nation of Israel sprung. We go back to the third chapter of the book of Exodus and we read that Yahweh visited his people Israel in the nation of while they were in bondage in Egypt. And Yahweh visited them and redeemed them out of Egypt. Now turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 8. We find the words of Moses spoken to the, to the people of Israel. And almost this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 8 could almost be, as it were, uh, um, a, a summary of Zechariah's psalm in Luke chapter 1. Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 But because Yahweh loved you, He stated in verse 7 that he did not choose them because they were more in number than any people, but they were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath Yahweh brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so Moses is reminding Israel there, that Yahweh had extended his love and his grace toward that people in visiting them in bondage in Egypt. He had remembered the oath which he'd sworn to the fathers of that nation and with a mighty hand he had redeemed them out of Egypt to be a people unto himself. And so that was the past history of Israel. But we find that's a history that's going to be repeated in the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 10 we read of the future works of Yahweh with Israel Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 8 (coughs) speaking of the future time when Yahweh will call the nation of Israel back to their land he says and I will hiss for them and gather them For I have redeemed them and they shall increase as they have increased and I will sow them among the people and they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again and I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria and bring them unto the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for them. And here Zechariah is predicting the time when Yahweh is once again going to visit his people Israel, when he's once again going to redeem them, 
out of all nations of the earth. So just as Israel became Yahweh's nation in the past, because Yahweh visited them in Egypt and redeemed them out of the house of bondage, so in the future time Yahweh is going to visit his people and he's going to redeem them out of all nations of the earth. He's going to establish them in that land once more. Jeremiah chapter 31 speaks concerning the same thing. Jeremiah 31 and verse 11 we read For Yahweh hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand that was stronger than he hand of him that was stronger than he. And so again we see that it is Yahweh's intention to redeem the nation of Israel from their present fallen state, scattered among the nations. He's going to redeem them and gather them once again to their own land. And so Zechariah in his psalm, recognised that through the mighty work that Yahweh was about to accomplish in Israel at that time, that through that work, this future redemption of Israel would be accomplished. And he looked forward to the time when Yahweh would once again visit his people, redeem them from, the, from, from all nations, and establish them in their own land once more. And so he addresses him as Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And we read in verse 69 that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I believe that Zechariah here must have had Psalm 132 in mind. Because in Psalm 132 we read of a horn being raised up in the house of David. Psalm 132 and at verse 17. Right at the end of the psalm. He says, I will clothe her priests with salvation in verse 16 and her saints shall, shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to buzz. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Again, this is a psalm that speaks of the covenant that God made with David. And the psalmist is is, is being transported into the future as he sees the Lord Jesus Christ crowned as a glorious king in Jerusalem. But in verse 17 he speaks of these events as making a, the horn of David to bud. The horn of David to sprout forth. And see in Zechariah he says he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So Zechariah recognised that it was in the house of David that this horn was to be raised up. Now in the second of Samuel chapter 22 where we have the words of David recorded after he had been delivered out of the hand of all his enemies <coughs> we read in, in, in 2 Samuel 22 and verse, verse 3 or 
reading from verse 1 and David spake unto Yahweh the words of this song in the day that Yahweh had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul and he said Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer the God of my rock in him will I trust he is my shield and the horn of my salvation my high tower, my refuge, my saviour thou savest me from violence and here as David praises Yahweh for the things that he had done in delivering him out of the hand of all his enemies speaks of him as the horn of my salvation now a horn as we noted last time is a symbol of power horns generally grow upon the heads of clean animals they are extensions or protrusions out of the head of a clean animal and it is by means of the, of, of the, the horns that the, the animal seeks its defence and makes its uh, attack on its enemy a horn is a symbol of power but here it's a horn of my salvation it's the power of my salvation I believe that in the mind of every Israelite versed in the scripture the phrase the horn of my salvation must of necessity take his mind to the temple or to the tabernacle because there in the tabernacle or later the temple was an altar with four horns and not only was the blood of the sin offering smeared upon those horns when a person came before Yahweh seeking forgiveness for their sins but we find that the horns of the altar were looked upon as a place of refuge and protection we have the example of in the first of Kings and chapter 2 and verse 28 we have the example of Joab who when he uh, hearing that Solomon had been established upon the throne uh, Joab realising the uh, the fate that would await him he fled to the, to the uh, tabernacle we read in chapter 2 and verse 28 of 1st of Kings then tidings came to Joab for Joab had turned after Adonijah though he turned not after Absalom and Joab fled unto the tabernacle of Yahweh and caught hold on the horns of the altar because he saw that as a place of mercy a place of refuge but you see, Joab didn't understand the law. He didn't understand that in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 14 it was told that a person who, who presumptuously slew his brother was to be removed from Yahweh's altar. But Solomon invoked that principle of the law and had Joab removed from that altar and put to death. But you see, Joab recognised that in the horns of that altar were, 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 were salvation, were deliverance. And so those horns were the horns of salvation in Israel. And when those horns smeared with the blood of the sin offering, they had the power to cover sins and they were the horns of salvation in Israel. Zechariah was a priest. Zechariah was well aware of the uh, rituals of the temple. And when he speaks of having raised up, God having raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I believe his mind would have been upon those blood spattered horns of the altar. He would recognise that in this child that was to be born to Mary, 
Yahweh was to raise up the power of salvation. But those horns had no power unless they were smeared with blood. He would recognise, I believe, that the Lord Jesus Christ would have to die as a sacrifice that Israel might be redeemed and restored to divine favour. And he recognised from Psalm 132 that that horn of salvation was to be raised up in the house of his servant David. And so Zechariah in verses 68 and 69 praises Yahweh for the work that he is about to accomplish in Israel. And he recognised that all those prophecies of the Old Testament but have their fulfilment through the work that Yahweh was to accomplish in his son that was soon to be born of Mary. You see in verse 70 Zechariah recognises this. He says, As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began. And so he sees that these things were a fulfilment. But the things that all the prophets had foretold from the very beginning of time. Now in the third chapter of the book of Acts we have that statement also. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 we read concerning the Lord Jesus Christ whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And then he goes straight to Moses. Truly Moses says, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. And so you see this work uh, that, that Yahweh was to accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ in the restoration of all things, the restoring of the kingdom under Israel, <coughs> was something that was foretold by the mouth of all God's holy prophets since the world began. See, it's a work that has its roots in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. It was predicted in the promises that God made unto Abraham. It's foretold by Moses. It was foretold to David. It's mentioned in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Probably not a single writing of the prophets can we find that doesn't foretell the restoration of the nation of Israel through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the deliverance of Israel has been foretold from the very beginning of their history. In verse 71, he makes reference to the fact that Israel is to be saved. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. <coughs> we turn back to the prophecy of Isaiah to see that indeed this was foretold in the writings of the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 49, Yahweh foretold that he would save Israel. Isaiah 49 and verse 5. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob to him, uh, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, 
and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a, a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest me be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And here's Isaiah prophesying concerning the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He <coughs> shows that it is his work to restore Jacob, to bring Jacob again to Yahweh, to restore the tribes of Jacob and, and, and the preserved of Israel, as well as be a light to the Gentiles. Now we go to Jeremiah chapter 23. In Jeremiah chapter 23 we find the same thing predicted. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 6. We read in verse 5 again, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is the subject of this verse. It says, Behold the days come, says Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord or Yahweh our righteousness. <coughs> so here again we see predicted in the writings of the prophets that Israel will be saved from their enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. And that is a work that is to be accomplished in the future time when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the earth again. Now in verse 72, Zechariah shows the reason why this is to happen. <coughs> it's uh, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now that's the very basis of, of, of all that Yahweh is doing with the nation of Israel. Come back to Leviticus chapter 26 where we read of that holy covenant that God made with the house of Israel. In Leviticus 26 <coughs> verses 42 to 45 particularly verse 45. In Levit or Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 42. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. Verse 43 speaks of the way that the land will enjoy her Sabbath. That's when Israel would be cast out for their iniquity. Um, verse 44 and yet for all that when they be in the land of their enemies I will not cast them away neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them for I am Yahweh their God but I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. So you see, there's the very basis of all of Yahweh's dealings with the people of Israel. He will remember the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. He will remember the covenant that he made with the nation of Israel in the day that he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He will remember those covenants 
and he will preserve Israel. And there's the very basis of Yahweh's dealings with that nation of Israel. It's not because of any virtue that they have, as the prophet Ezekiel makes quite clear. It's because of his holy covenant that he made with the fathers of that nation uh, in days of old. In Ezekiel chapter 16 we find the same thing set before us quite plainly. Ezekiel 16 and verse 63. The prophet Ezekiel, or Yahweh through the prophet Ezekiel says, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more, because of thy shame, when I am pacified toward thee, for all that thou hast done, saith Adonai Yahweh. You see, in verse 62 he says, I will establish my covenant with thee. In verse 60 he has said, Nevertheless I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. And he speaks in verse 61, Of them shall we remember their ways. So it's not, Yahweh is not going to restore Israel for any virtue that they have but in remembrance of his holy covenant. And that's the very point that Zechariah makes clear in his psalm. In his psalm where he shows how Yahweh will redeem Israel because of his holy covenant. Because he will perform the mercy promised to the fathers and he will remember his holy covenant. And then in verse 73 he says, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Now that oath is mentioned in Genesis chapter 22. And that's the passage in the book of Genesis where we read of Yahweh making an oath with Abraham. And Zechariah refers us back to that oath with Abraham. <coughs> In Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 to 18, we read of that oath. And he said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And here Yahweh swears with an oath to Abraham that he would provide him with a seed. And we know that that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us so in Galatians 3 verse 16. That seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that seed here is going to be multiplied as the stars of heaven. And we know that Yahweh is to multiply the Lord Jesus Christ into a multitudinous body upon the principle of belief of the gospel and baptism into him. But you see, we're told then that Christ and the saints will possess the gate of his enemies. 
And we know that that means that he's going to rule over his enemies. His enemies are going to be subdued. And when his enemies are subdued, Israel will dwell in peace. Because the first work of the Lord Jesus Christ on a national scale is to restore the nation of Israel to their own land. To establish them as Yahweh's firstborn nation in the midst of his family of other nations. And when the seed of Abraham possesses the gate of his enemies, then Israel will dwell safely. Israel will dwell at peace, just as Zechariah foretells there in that psalm. And all those things he's been speaking of. Israel being saved from their enemies and from the hand of all that hate them. The performing of the mercy promise, the remembering of the holy covenant, all those things will be accomplished when that oath with it to, that he swore to Abraham is fulfilled and the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorified saints are in the earth once more and all Israel's enemies are subdued and Israel will dwell at peace. You know, Zechariah goes on in, in, in verse 74 and he says that he would grant unto us that being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. So, you see, he speaks there of being delivered out of the hand of their enemies, as they will be in the future time, as promised to, to Abraham, as was promised to David, as was predicted <coughs> through the writings of the prophets. Israel as a nation will be delivered out of the hand of their enemies that they might serve Yahweh without fear. Do you know, brothers and sisters, I believe that Zachariah's words go far deeper than that here. They go far deeper than that. They will be delivered on a national basis, it is true. But they will be delivered on a personal basis also at that time. Now in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, Verses 14 and 15. Paul speaks concerning the manner of Israel's life in his day as they laboured in bondage to the law of Moses. Now if we read in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 speaks of the uh, uh, fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was a partaker of the same nature as we are that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, or human nature. And he says in verse 15, deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And there in that verse he sums up the manner of life of an Israelite in bondage to the law of Moses, that law which constantly and continually reminded them of sin. Every day of their life, if they had their eyes open, that law would point the finger at them and say, you are a sinner, you are worthy to die. And consequently they lived continually in fear of death under that law. The Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans makes the point, that under the bonds of the new covenant, it is different to that. The Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans 
makes the point that under the bonds of the new covenant it is different to that Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 we read for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba Father or Father Father and the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God he said we've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear that was the spirit that the law brought us under the spirit of fear of death because of sin do you know in the future times when Israel are restored they're going to be restored to divine favour under a different covenant to what they were in the past Jeremiah tells us that in the 31st chapter of his prophecy where he speaks concerning the restoration of Israel (coughs) and he says in verse 31 of chapter 31 he says Behold the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity I will remember their sin no more. You see, when Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt and he gathered them at Mount Sinai and made a covenant with them, that was the Mosaic covenant. That was the law of Moses, which they couldn't keep. And they were in bondage to sin and death under that. But he says, <coughs> when he, the days come, uh, Jeremiah says in verse 31, that I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You know, when Israel are restored, they're going to be brought under the bonds of the Abrahamic covenant, just as you and I are today. They're going to be under the same covenant that Abraham was under. Do you remember in Luke chapter 1, where we considered the work of John the Baptist, that he would go in the spirit and the power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You see, in the future time, Israel, who are disobedient under the law, will be brought to see the wisdom of the justified, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They will see the wisdom of justification by faith and they will be brought back to divine favour under the bonds of the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant that doesn't bring continual remembrance of sin, but a covenant that brings forgiveness of iniquity and remembrance of sin no more. Now that's the covenant that Israel is going to be restored under in the the future time. And you see, Zechariah, I believe, having introduced us 
Firstly to the oath which Yahweh made with their father Abraham. And then immediately speaking of the way in which Israel will serve God without fear, I believe he's showing in that psalm the fact that Israel will be restored to divine favour upon the principle of faith at the writing of the law upon the heart and in the inward parts. They will be restored by faith. They will recognise that the, 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 the principle upon which Abraham was justified. They will believe the things that God promised to Abraham upon that day and they will be restored to favour upon that basis. Now in the <coughs> ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle speaks concerning us at this present time but the same will apply to Israel in the future times. In Hebrews 9 and verse 14, verse 13, he speaks of the way that the blood of bulls and goats and the, ash, uh, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, sprinkling the unclean sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh. In other words, in a ceremonial way, the person so sprinkled uh, was physically purified and brought back uh, into a right relationship with their God under the principles of the Mosaic Covenant. But he says in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through, the, through an eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, that principle set forth in Jeremiah chapter 31 where Yahweh forgives iniquity and he remembers sin no more when people approach him acceptably can purge their conscience a person doesn't have to uh, allow the little sins of weakness that they commit and they seek forgiveness for in the appropriate way they no longer have to allow those things to affect their service to the living God with, with our conscience cleansed, knowing that forgiveness is available, knowing that sins can be forgiven, we can give ourselves wholeheartedly and totally to the service of our God. Whereas under the law of Moses, a person was continually conscious of sin, continually held at arm's length from God by the consciousness of sin that that law, law uh, produced in a person's mind. But with the conscience cleansed by the blood of Christ, a person can joyfully, willingly, lovingly give themselves totally to the service of their God. And that's how Israel will serve God in the future time. Being delivered out of the hand of their enemies, they will serve him without fear. Now in verse 75 he, he notes other qualities that will characterise the nation of Israel in the future time. You know, brethren and sisters, in the future time Israel will stand in exactly the same relationship to Yahweh that we stand in today. They will be working out their salvation then upon exactly the same principles as we should be working out ours now. You know, we should be living our lives now in a way that can set an example for Israel in the future. And Zechariah shows us in these verses how Israel will live in the future. They will serve Yahweh without fear. 
in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of their life. Now in holiness. You know, Israel was called to be a holy nation. That was Yahweh's purpose with those people and he brought them out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 tells us so. He says, For thou art an holy people under Yahweh thy Elohim. Yahweh thy Elohim hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. See, he'd chosen them to be a special people. He'd chosen them to be a holy people. You know, in the 11th chapter of the book of Leviticus, we're shown (coughs) the principle upon which they were to become a holy people. Leviticus chapter 11 and at verse 44. Leviticus 11 and verse 44 For I am Yahweh your Elohim Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves and ye shall be holy for I am holy Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth For I am Yahweh that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your Elohim Ye shall therefore be holy for I am holy This is the law of the beasts and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. You see, and Yahweh gave those laws that they might learn to discern between the clean and the unclean that they might reject the unclean, that they might choose the clean, and that they might be a holy people. That's why Yahweh gave the the, the ordinances in that particular chapter, that they might be able to discern between the clean and the unclean, that they might be able to make judgment between the two, that they might choose the one and reject the other, so that they might be holy as Yahweh is holy. In the future restored under Christ Israel will be a holy people Isaiah tells us so in his fourth chapter (coughs) and at verse 3 he says and it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So you see, in the future times, Israel will discern between what is clean and what is unclean. They will reject the unclean and they will choose the clean. And they will be a holy people under Yahweh. You know, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that Yahweh has called us to be a holy people. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Remember Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 Yahweh chose Israel that they might be a holy nation under him. 
Now Paul tells us that God has chosen us that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. Now Yahweh gave Israel laws and commandments that they might discern between the clean and the unclean, that they might choose the clean and reject the unclean, that they might be a people separated and dedicated unto himself. They never really discerned the difference. They never saw the difference between the clean and the unclean. They wanted to be like the nations round about. And so they had to be cast out of that land as an unholy people. But in the future times they will be restored as a holy people. But we, brethren and sisters, are we going to follow the example of Israel in the past? Are we going to fail to see the difference between Yahweh's truth and this world around us? Are we not going to be able to clearly see the difference? To choose what's right and reject what's wrong? Breaking down that separation? Breaking down the principle of holiness? We need to look deeply at the example of Israel and take warning, brethren and sisters. Israel were chosen to be a holy people, but they failed. They weren't separated under Yahweh. But in the future, under the Abrahamic covenant, they will be. They will then, their minds will then be so filled with the grace and the goodness of Yahweh that they will gladly choose those things that are pleasing unto him. But not only will they serve God in holiness, but also in righteousness. You know, in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 21, we read of the character of the nation of Israel in the past, in the future, in this regard. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 21, the prophet Isaiah says, Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And so you see, the people of Israel in the future will be all righteous. That is, justified by faith. They will all be justified in the same way that Abraham was. They will be righteous because God will not remember their sins and iniquities anymore. But he will block them out. See, they will, they will uh, uh, manifest the faith of Abraham. They will be brought into a right and acceptable relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Because in the first of Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul points out that the Lord Jesus Christ is unto us uh, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and so forth. And they will then be righteous because they will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Zechariah notes one further aspect of Israel's service in the future. They have served without fear in holiness and righteousness. Before him all the days of their life. In Genesis 17 and verse 1, Yahweh spoke to Abraham and he said, Walk before me and be thou perfect. You know, a true saint should always, should live always conscious of Yahweh's presence. Their whole life should be lived as if it's lived before the eyes of Yahweh, conscious always of his nearness, conscious always of his presence. 
Such was the case with Abraham. Such will be the case with Israel in the future. Such should be the case with us now. And they're going to serve Yahweh like that all the days of our life. You know, under the law, they served Yahweh on the Sabbath days, the new moons, the feast days, and so on and so forth. Special days that were set aside. But so very often, in the days in between, they forgot all about Yahweh. We read in the prophets of the day where they were just waiting for the Sabbath to finish that they might get on with their business. Served him for a few hours, waiting for those hours to pass when they can get back to their own work. But you see, here they will serve Yahweh consistently and continually all the days of their life. Every day will be spent in the service of Yahweh. That's the way that Israel will serve Yahweh in the future times. And we, brethren and sisters, should be setting an example now for Israel to follow in the future time. We today are in exactly the position and relationship to Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ as they will be in the future. And so we see how Zechariah speaks of Yahweh's deliverance for Israel in the future. How Israel will be restored to divine favour. They will serve Yahweh without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of their life. And now at verse 76, Zechariah turns from the nation of Israel. We can imagine how he would literally turn from talking to the people in that room and he would cast his eyes upon that child. He would say, And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest turning the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 32 that it was said that he would be called the son of the highest but John is to be called the prophet of the highest indeed it was a very high calling that he had it was a very high standard that he had to live up to to be the prophet of the highest we find that John did live up to that standard John did fulfil his obligations as the prophet of the highest In Luke chapter 7 and verse 28 we read, For I say unto you, among those that were born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the Lord Jesus Christ says there wasn't a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And then John, uh, then Zechariah, speaks of the work of John. Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 prophesied that Yahweh would send his messenger before his face to prepare his ways. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 to 6 speaks of the work of the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ going in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5 likewise speak of the work of the forerunner going before the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare his ways. What does it mean to prepare his ways? It means, brothers and sisters, to prepare the minds of men. His work was to go before the Lord to prepare their minds to receive the Messiah of Israel. We'll have a closer look at the words of Isaiah chapter 40 when we get to Luke chapter 3 where it is mentioned in context with the ministry of John. But this was the work that was set before John the Baptist to prepare the ways of the Lord, to prepare people's minds 
to receive the Saviour. <coughs> you see, he says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people. And the margin says, for the remission of their sins. And John, in Luke chapter 3, when he commenced his, his ministry, he did give the knowledge of salvation to his people for the remission of their sins. Now in verse 78, <coughs> Zechariah sees in the work of John and the Lord Jesus Christ an extension of the tender mercy of our God. He sees quite clearly that salvation has its origin in the grace of Yahweh. Through the tender mercy, or as the margin says, bowels of the mercy, through bowels of mercy, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. The word day spring, the Greek word, means literally a rising. It can apply to the uh, uh, rising of the sun or the moon or the rising of a, of a shoot up out of the earth, like a branch up out of the earth. But the context here obviously applies it to the rising of the sun. Because the, the day spring on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so Zechariah is using here the language of the rising of the sun. And the rising of the sun ushers in a new day. Zechariah could see that a new era was about to be born in the history of Israel. A new day was being born. And you know as he looks at, uh, at John and he speaks of the rising of the sun, he could see that John was like those first beams that come up over the horizon. The little glimmer of light that, 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 that testifies that the full glory of the sun is following. And the full glory of the sun is soon to be manifest. That was the work of John the Baptist. You know, as he speaks here of, of the day spring from on high visiting us, both John and Jesus were people provided by Yahweh. They were both visitations of God in that sense. In that they were both provided by Yahweh. Now in the 8th uh, chapter of John, and verse 12, the Lord Jesus Christ states that he is the light of the world. He is the sun, the light of the world. Uh, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And John, we know, was a, uh, like a little hand lamp that came before, heralding in the full light of the sun. And so we see it had an application in that way. The rising of a sun heralded in a new day, even at that time. But of course the rising of the sun has a future application also. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1 we read of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ like the rising of the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. And so at the future time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth there will be another sun rising, another birth of another day. Verse 2 of Malachi chapter 4 But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings 
and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of armies. And so when we speak of the day spring, the rising of the sun, it had an application in, in, in Zechariah's day in the work of John and the Lord Jesus Christ. It had an application in the future when the sun will rise in its full glory, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be in the earth again to be established as a glorious king in Jerusalem and to establish peace and righteousness in the earth. Now, Zechariah, in his psalm, now combines several prophecies of the Old Testament together concerning the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to give light to them that sit in darkness. There are many quotations in the prophets that refer to the Lord Jesus Christ as as a light. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, Isaiah chapter 49 that we looked at before, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 2, all speak of the Lord Jesus Christ as giving light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And in the darkness and the shadow of death it describes the utterly hopeless condition of mankind outside of Yahweh's grace. Groping in darkness, not knowing which way to walk, which way to turn. Living in the shadow of death to grope in the darkness for a few brief years and then go to, 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 to eternal silence of the grave. That's the hopeless situation of mankind. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh has given a light that can enlighten us and that can guide our feet, says Zechariah, into the way of peace. It can guide our feet into the way of peace. Psalm 25, verses 8 to 10, speak concerning the law of Yahweh guiding the feet. Psalm 25, verses 8 to 10. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment. And the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of Yahweh are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so here the psalmist speaks concerning the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh and and for those who will submit to that word. Those who will humbly submit to the guidance of that word. He speaks of them being directed... uh, directed in their path, being taught in his ways. You know, Zechariah spoke of the way which he would guide our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace. And that peace signifies a oneness. A oneness with God. He'll direct our paths into the way of fellowship with God, really, is what those words are saying. If a person's feet are to be guided by the principles of Yahweh's word, he will walk in Yahweh's ways. He will walk in Yahweh's ways and he will be at one with Yahweh. 
That's the whole purpose for which Yahweh has called us. That we might be at one with him. And so he will direct our path, our feet, into the way of peace. But we have to be prepared to follow that way. We have to be prepared to walk in the light of that word. To be directed into those paths of peace. And you know, when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the earth again, when that sun of righteousness arises with healing in his wings, the prophet Malachi speaks of the way that they that fear his name will be united with him at that time and they will go forth in this earth and they will tread the wicked underfoot. And the wicked will be like ashes under the soles of their feet. Then peace will be established upon the earth. You see, he's speaking of a holy people. A people who can discern between that which is clean and that which is unclean. A people who can discern the difference between the unclean beasts and the clean beasts. A people who separate themselves from the unclean, dedicate themselves to the service of Yahweh. In the future, they will tread the wicked underfoot. They will walk in the ways of peace the ways of oneness with God. And so Zechariah's psalm comes to its end upon that glorious note. The day spring arising on high, giving light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. The chapter ends <coughs> and the child grew and went strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing under Israel. Now Brother Robert Roberts writes concerning that statement in Nazareth Revisited that he put on the sheet that was given to you. The child grew and went strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing under Israel. This covers the whole interval from his birth till his appearance as a preacher on the banks of Jordan. It tells us as much as we need to know. It does not mean that he lived no part of the time in his mother's house, but that he remained in seclusion instead of beginning at 12 years of age like other boys to attend the feasts at Jerusalem regularly. He was unseen and unknown outside his own domestic circle till the hour for his public work arrived. His mother lived in the hill country where desert abounded and here he would doubtless spend much of his time in the open air indulging in contemplation and prayer and acquiring those habits of hardihood for which he became known to the crowds who afterwards listened to his preaching. And Brother Roberts points out there that verse 80 spans about 27 years from his birth till the time when he entered his public ministry as recorded in Luke chapter 3. We're told that the child grew that is, he grew physically, he grew in actual size and developed like most healthy children do. But we're told that he waxed strong in spirit. He waxed strong in spirit, that is, in intellect. He waxed strong morally and spiritually. And we get a picture of an intelligent lad of moral virtue self-restrained, self-controlled, 
willingly and lovingly choosing the things of God, delighting in nature, and above all, in the word of God. He's got parents that are very old. We don't know at what stage of John's life that Zachariah and Elizabeth died. Probably they lived long enough to see him through those tender years of childhood to a time when at least he could fend for himself. But at any rate, when that child was born, they were nearing the end of their life. Their life work, in one sense, was almost done. In another sense, it had only just begun. In old age, probably, freed from many of the pressures and, and, and worries of, 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 of younger days, we can imagine how their last few years would have been spent with nothing else in life for them but that young child. Nothing else but that young child and knowing that it was no ordinary child. Knowing that that child was set for great things in the service of his God. We can imagine the attention that they would have given him. That is to his education, his spiritual development. Everything that they had would have been given, put into him to prepare him for the great work that was before him. You know, he lived in a region of the land that was rich in its history. The cave of Machpelah would have been probably near to their home. The inheritance of Caleb, he lived right in the very region of the inheritance of Caleb. You know, he, he inhabited the regions where David spent much of his life, where David was first crowned as a king, no doubt. It was rich in its history. We can imagine, brethren and sisters, the way that Zachariah and Elizabeth would, 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 would bring this history constantly up before that child. How they would instill into him the faith of their father Abraham who also lived in that region of the land. The faith of David, uh, of Caleb, and of so on and so forth. And it was under these circumstances that that child waxed strong in spirit. And he grew and he prospered in the things of Yahweh. But he was hidden from that nation. We can imagine how Zechariah would have constantly impressed upon him the apostasy that was in that nation and exhorted him to keep separate from the evil influences of that nation at that time. And so we see that John spent much of his time in the desert, out alone with his God, until the day of his showing unto Israel. The day when Yahweh... Uh, 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 presented him under Israel and he commenced his ministry of preparing men's minds to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there we will have to leave our class at this time. And of course at the end of Luke, uh, of, of, of Luke chapter 1 we have to trace the steps of Mary now back to the city of Nazareth. And we find that recorded in the book of Matthew to which we will direct our attention in two weeks' time, if the Lord wills.